Okay, with Purim coming up, I thought it would be meaningful. What? At least for me or for you. With Purim coming up, I thought it would be meaningful to talk a little bit about Purim, specifically on the first Pasuk in, uh, in the Megillah. When a person learns the first Pasuk in the Megillah, it seems overwhelm- It seems underwhelming. We know that when a person has a child, so in that initial DNA of the child, the entire child is already in that DNA. It just needs to grow and to expand into the child all the way down to the toenails and the fingernails. So when we think about the first Pasuk in the Megillah, we should be like seeing everything. Like in Bereshus, it's Bereshus Baralakim as a Shemayim Ves like everything is contained within that first moment of creation and the entire story that comes afterwards. It was already embedded in that first moment of creation. So it's surprising to us that the first Pasuk in Megillus Esther is The king in that time, in the times of Achashverosh, he was Achashverosh, who was Molech, who was the king over the entire world, all the way from Hodu to Kush, 127 provinces. That seems to be history. That doesn't seem to be something that has everything like inside of it. That doesn't seem to be the DNA that has the rest of the story. So when we ask ourselves, why did the Megillah start off this way? The simple answer is to tell you that since the Jews were being threatened by this person, Achashverosh, you have to know that he was the king over the entire world. It was a really serious threat. And how much was he the king? Mehodu Kush, 127 provinces. So it's like to dramatize the point. When Klai, it's like if somebody comes along and they say, I'm going to kill all the Jews. So okay, it doesn't matter. If you're some random guy on the side of the street and you say, I'm going to kill all the Jews. So nobody gets too excited by that. If the president of the United States says, I'm going to kill the Jews, that's a big deal. Because that's over all of America. But if the king over the entire world comes and says, I'm going to kill every single Jew, that's obviously a very big deal. Now you might ask yourself, is it really a big deal? You know, a king, when he lives in one section of the world, especially back then, how is he going to communicate his message to everybody else? Is he really such an effective king? The answer is he was molech mehodu kush, meaning he had real control. So you have to know how dangerous it was. But for us, people who try to seek the inner message in Judaism, that's not a meaningful enough answer. Maybe it's true, but it doesn't give us the feeling that the entire story is embedded in that first Pasuk in the Megillah. So our first question for tonight is, why didn't the story of the Megillah start off with something more powerful? Start off with Mordechai. Why does it have to start off with Achashverosh was the king over the entire world? That's, it's nice, but that's the story of Purim? That's question number one. Question number two. There's a famous Gemara, Gemara in Megillah. Where was Hodu and where was Kush? So the Gemara says, it's Machlokas. Either Hodu and Kush were right next to each other. They were literally two countries that were right next to each other. And if they were two countries that were right next to each other, then what's the implication of the Gemara? The implication of, I'm sorry, the implication of the Pasuk. The implication of the Pasuk is 
that Akadosh that that Achashverosh was Molech Mehodu Vadkush means just like he was living in those countries, like Hodu and Kush were right next to each other, so too he was Molech over the entire world. Or the Gemara says no. Maybe Hodu and Kush were actually on opposite ends of the globe. And when it says he was Molech Mehodu Vadkush, it means from one end of the globe all the way to the other end of the globe. So it's a machlokus where Hodu and Kush was. I have two questions on this Gemara. Question number one. Why not just look at a map? What's it? Imagine if I told you this machlokus where Sharfman's is. Is it here or in Sanhedrin or Chavit? What would you say? It's not a machlokus. Somebody who doesn't know says that it's in Sanhedrin or Chavit. Somebody who does know says it's in Ramad Ashkol. So, okay, but say there. So you could say, so you could say about Sharfman's, you could say because it's on the border, so we understand, this is why I chose it, we understand that it could be both, right? Mm-hmm. But if Hodu and Kush were on opposite ends of the world, could there really be a machlokus about that? Mm-hmm. It's either going to be close to each other or it's going to be very, very far apart. So why not just look at a map? That's number one. Question number two, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Hodu and Kush were someplace in the world. Obviously, he was Molech from one end of it to the other. Why does the Gemara have to get so, like, you know, like, so detail-oriented? Was it here? Was it there? Like, what does it matter to us? He was Molech on the entire world. What does it matter exactly where Hodu and Kush were? Even if you said Hodu and Kush were right next to each other, right? So you look at it circular. He was Molech Mehodu all the way around the globe to Kush. Or you look at it like this. He was Molech Mehodu, right? Vad Kush. And back again. So what does it matter? It doesn't matter. That's question number two. Question number three, final question. The Gemara tells an unbelievably fascinating story that one day, Rav Akiva was giving Shir. And he saw that the Talmidim and Shir were starting to fall asleep. Maybe it was after a lot. Maybe they didn't have an incentive anymore to stay awake and work hard in shear, let alone to come. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, if you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. I'm not no, saying. Yeah, we know what you're saying. I'm not saying. So, Rav he wanted to wake up his Talmidim. He wanted to get them interested. It's like maybe I'm feeling right now. He wanted to get them interested, right? So he said, I want to tell you something amazing. I want to tell you something unbelievable. Esther Amalco ruled over 127 provinces. Why? Because sorry, Imenu lived for 127 years. You know, you know, like, uh, you know those third grade teachers that they give you, like, gematrias up the wazoo, you know? Like, you're trying to figure out, like, what's the connection between this and that? So I have a, I have a lot of questions on this tomorrow. Famous question. First of all, what is it? What was that? Weren't they the beautiful woman, like, one, two out of the three? They were very beautiful. No, like, the Gemara says three beautiful women. Yeah, the Gemara says more than that. But, yes, they were considered the most beautiful women, but still. Fine, so that's not like, <laughs> even if that's Even if you're right that they were both beautiful women... She lived 127 years, so she ruled over 127 countries. Right. Like, yeah, my yeah, like what, what's one got to do with the Austria? As my, as my daughters, my daughters are growing up in Israel, so what they say, they call, they say, Makesher, Makesher. I don't know if you ever hear Israeli, Makesher, Abba, Makesher. I'm like, what was that? Yeah, Makesher, Makesher. I always know when I say something, like my daughters don't like, they go, Abba, Makesher, what do you even say? Yeah, Makesher. What's Rebbe Kiva saying? He's saying... Esther Amalka lived 120, had ruled over 127 provinces because Sari Menu 
She lived for 127 years. What in the world are we talking about over here? And not only that, what does it mean that Rav Akiva's Talmidim were falling asleep? First of all, if Rav Akiva's Talmidim were falling asleep, he should have told them to leave the shear. You're not allowed to sit in shear in a disrespectful fashion falling asleep. You have to be respectful of the Rebbe. So Rav Akiva sees that his Talmidim are falling asleep, so he decides to wake them up. Beseda, we already don't know why that is. But if you're going to wake up your Talmidim, you would imagine a fire and brimstone Musa Shmus. Yeah? One of your Rebbeim gets up and he starts to pound the table and he starts to roast the girls and he starts to say, Girls, you're wasting your year. We're right before Purim. Right? Whoever the Rebbe is, I'm not saying. Right? And he gets up and he tells you, You can't be like this. You have to be like that in your life. You have to live in this community. Right? And he gives you a fire and brimstone Muslim schmooze. And don't you understand that coming to Shear late and not paying attention and falling asleep in Shear, don't you understand how this is going to impact your Shaduchim? Don't you understand how this is going to impact your children? Your entire life is going to bits just because you fell asleep in one chair. That would have been a fire and brimstone Muslim schmooze. <laughs> Relax, no anxiety, yeah? Comes along to the Kiva and he says, I want to tell you something. This is going to be the greatest Tessarius in the world. This is Mamash going to wake you up. And that's the message he gives? That does not seem to be the most inspirational message. That seems to be a message of a cute thing. This, it was 127 over here, it's 127 over there. The Kiva was a very deep person. The Talmidim were very deep people. Obviously there's a hidden message here, something for us. Something that we can learn from that could Be'ezer Hashem help us. I want to share with you tonight a really beautiful idea. Girls, what do we mean when we say God is infinite? When we say God is infinite, so people think God is the biggest. That's the first step. How big is God? God is infinite. He's the biggest. no Okay. Bigger than size. Bigger than size. So what does that mean, bigger than size? It means he can't be contained within this world, right? God cannot be measured. He's beyond the realm of time and space. What's the danger in thinking that way? It's certainly true, but what's the danger in thinking that way? Right. You could make God so big, and he is, in fact, incomprehensible. You could make God so big that he becomes irrelevant to your life. In other words, if God is infinite, that means he's beyond the finite. So what's the feeling we have? No Doesn't really matter. Nothing I do really matters. And if nothing I do really matters, so then what am I doing? It's like that story of the Talmud Rebbe. I don't know if I told you girls the story of the Talmud Rebbe, but even if I told it, it's bear, it bears repeating. The Talmud Rebbe was lighting... The Menorah. And thousands of Hasidim used to come from all over the place to see the Talna Rebbe light Megillah. To, to light Menorah. Sorry, I'm, in, I'm holding in Purim time. We don't light Megillah. That's a bad idea. We light Menorah. He's coming to light the Menorah. And so all the Hasidim come. The Talna Rebbe comes out. And he's sitting in front of the Menorah. And everyone's waiting for the usual hisairus, the, like the shuckling, the, like the amazing lighting of the menorah that they're waiting to see. And the Rebbe is not lighting. And everyone's like, what's going on? One minute goes by, the next minute goes by, the next minute goes by. And after 20 minutes, I see them starting to get restless. Like, what's going on with the Rebbe over here? He's just standing there. And then the Rebbe turns around, and he calls out, is Shmuel the Heicha here? Heicha means the tall one. Apparently in that town there was Shmuel the tall one and Shmuel the short one. Shmuel the Heicha was the tall one. So Shmuel the Heicha says, Yes, Rebbe, I'm here. The Talmud Rebbe says, Quick, come, Shmuel the Heicha, please come, please come. 
So of course, all Hasidim parted ways by Kriyas Yamsuf. Shmuel the walks through, and he comes to the Rebbe, and in front of everybody, the Rebbe turns to Shmuel the and he goes, Shmuel, do you love your wife? So this is not like today. This is not like today when people say such things in public, right? Back then, people were at Sanua. They didn't say these things in public. It's not like today where you have on the Jumbotron in Yankee Stadium, will you please marry me? And you have 20,000 Yankee fans screaming, say no, say no. You know, like, <laughs> this was a time of like, tznius. But if the Rebbe asked you if you love your wife, what do you say? Yes. So he said, yes, of course I love my wife. So the Rebbe said, there, he goes, good, 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 good. Good, Shmuel, tell me. Do you ever tell your wife a secret? Uh, yes, yes, Rabbi, I, I tell my wife a secret. Yeah, all the Hasidim are sitting there going like, what in the world is going on over here? Just tell me, Shmuel, if you tell your wife a secret, tell me, how do you do it? You're so tall. Shmuel the Heicha must have been like six foot seven, you know? And he was probably married to a Jewish girl, which means she was like five foot nothing, right? That's rude. It's true. <laughs> So, so he said, how do you tell your wife a secret? Debbie, what do you mean, how do I tell my wife a secret? If you're so tall and she's so short, how do you tell your wife a secret? He goes, Rabbi, I bend down. Oh, good, 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 good. But, but is that it? Does she do anything? So Shmuel the Heichel thinks, and he thinks like, and he goes, yes, Rabbi, she stands on her tippy toes so that she can come up to me. She says, oh, Unbelievable. And the Rebbe starts dancing and singing, and he lights the menorah with such tremendous eslava, such tremendous passion. And all the Hasidim, they were watching, they said this was the greatest lighting of the menorah ever. So, of course, one of the Alter Hasidim went over to the Rebbe afterwards to ask him what happened, because, of course, it wouldn't be a good story if we didn't have one of the older Hasidim that goes over afterwards to find out what happened. So he said, Rebbe, what, what was that? So the Rebbe said, I was sitting here, and I'm about to light the menorah, it's a Chernobyl menorah. And it's like a big deal. And every year, thousands of people come to see me light it. And I ask myself, just a simple question. Does the Rebbe Shalom really care if I light Menorah? Like, does it really matter? The Rebbe Shalom is infinite. I'm finite. I'm just a little guy with a little Menorah, a little Nair. Does the Rebbe Shalom really care? And I started to think to myself, no, the Rebbe Shalom does not care. And then I said, wait a second, if the Rebbe Shalom doesn't care about my Menorah, then why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu care about my Tefillin? The Rebbe Shalom must not care about my Tefillin. If the Rebbe Shalom doesn't care about my Tefillin, maybe the Rebbe Shalom doesn't even care if I keep kosher. If the Rebbe Shalom doesn't care if I keep kosher, maybe the Rebbe Shalom doesn't care if I keep Shabbos. He said, I'm sitting there in front of thousands of Hasidim and I'm mamish, headed off the derech. Because in my head, I'm like, like, what am I doing? And then I said, wait a second, Shmuel the Heichel. Shmuel is so big and his wife is so small and because he loves her, he probably wants to tell her a secret. So he has to bend down. And the Rebbe Shalom also, he comes down to us. We have to just stand on our tippy toes. But the Rebbe Shalom, because he's so big, he comes all the way down to us so that he can hear the secret. The danger of talking about the infinity of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the danger of it, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is so big, so removed from our lives, so removed from this world, that a person could think to themselves, I mamish don't matter. And that's a very scary thing. And I think maybe even for us in this room right now, maybe we don't even realize how scary it actually is. Maybe it's something we've thought of before in our lives, but it never really occurred to us, or maybe it does occur to us, but maybe not in this way, that when we ask ourselves, do my mitzvos and my averos really matter? What we're really asking is, is if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is infinite, 
then why does it matter? You understand? That's what we're asking ourselves. If a girl wakes up in the morning and she says, why should I daven? What is she saying? What is she really saying? She's not really saying, I'm lazy. That's not really what she was saying. Because if she knew the value of her davening, she wouldn't be lazy. What is she saying when she wakes up in the morning? She's saying, does, it really, does that Kodesh Baruch really care? Does that Kodesh Baruch really care if I daven or not? It doesn't seem to impact my life one way or another. So does the Rebbe really care if I daven or not? And if the Rebbe doesn't care about my davening, then maybe the Rebbe doesn't care about my tznias. And if the Rebbe doesn't care about my tznias, maybe the Rebbe doesn't care if I'm key kosher. And the Rebbe doesn't care about, doesn't care about kosher, maybe the, certainly doesn't care about tars from mishpach. So a person can be in a place where they're feeling so low relative to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's infinity that they're headed straight off the derech. And by the way, this is the question. When you talk to kids, when they're 16 years old, and you ask them, like, what's going on in your Yiddishkeit? You know what they say? None of it matters. Like, none of it matters. Now, they'll, they'll couch it in words that are comfortable for 16-year-olds, right? They'll say, like, honestly, you think God cares about this? They'll say it like that. But, but what do they really mean? They really mean to ask a very deep philosophical question. Does it really matter? And since it doesn't really matter, I have this thing on the other end that makes me feel really good. And I have my Yiddishkeit that makes me feel really bad. So why would I choose my Yiddishkeit? This thing makes me feel good. This thing makes me feel bad. This thing doesn't seem to matter, so why should I do it? It's a big question. It's a very big question. What's the answer to this question? The answer to this question is as follows. Infinite means unlimited. And unlimited doesn't mean that HaKadosh Baruch Hu exists only beyond this world. It also means that HaKadosh Baruch Hu exists within this world. If something is truly infinite, that means it's not just in the highest places, it's in the lowest places. If something is truly infinite, it means that the details and the big picture things are equally valuable. In other words, if a person is, let's say, the CEO of a company, Right? And he's in charge of the big picture ideas and he's sitting in the big board meetings and he's making the big decisions. What matters to the CEO? Because he's in charge of everything. It matters to him what's going on in the stock rooms. It matters to him what the employees are doing. It matters to him the cleanliness of the store. It matters to him the prices. He may not be doing all those things, but because everything that he's doing is to sell that product, then every little thing about the product matters. And if Chas Shalom one thing goes wrong with the product, what does the CEO say? What happened? Who was in charge of this? Right? Why is it? Why do you care? You're in charge of the big picture. You're sitting in boardrooms. Because if you're sitting in boardrooms, why are you sitting in boardrooms? Because you want every little detail to be worked out perfectly. Every detail matters. So imagine for a second you were running Apple. You're the CEO of Apple. And you have the new microchip processor. It's the smallest, lightest microchip processor ever, and it's faster than any microchip processor we ever had. So now when you turn on your iPhones, everything is going to be speedy. Right? Everything is going to be the fastest thing in the world. And now a little bit of dust got into the room where they make those microchips, where they make those microprocessors. Tiny little bit of dust. Girls, what happens when you have a tiny little bit of dust in such a room? The entire factory has to shut down. You know why? Because if even one speck of dust gets onto that microchip, the entire thing is going to be ruined. They make special plants, clean rooms, where there's no dust in these rooms whatsoever when they make them. Because even the smallest, most minuscule thing matters. The bigger you are, the more you recognize the infinite value of every small thing. Does that make sense? So if you think of infinite and you think, like you said, which is correct, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is beyond the realm of time and space, you're going to make a terrible mistake. 
Because if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is only beyond the realm of time and space, then I don't matter. But if HaKadosh Baruch Hu lives within the world, if he's here, if he's present, of course he's beyond the world, but it's so infinite that he's also within the world. And if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is within the world, then what does that mean? Every single moment, in every single place, throughout all of history, is infinitely meaningful. Every single little minuscule thing that we do matters infinitely. How do you think that and then not go crazy? Because if you're thinking like any small thing you do, Hashem like cares, like and it's not the biggest deal that you did something, then you're gonna be like, I can't do anything, like I just have to stand here and stay still because anything I do is gonna be counted against me or like you know See that's such an angry God you have. You have a very angry God. I bless cares, you that you should have a Jewish God. But if he cares so much about every little thing that you do, so how do you give yourself that? Because he's also infinitely compassionate. He's also so infinite. Do do I don't draw the line. Exactly. I don't have to draw the line. I don't draw the line. I, I, it's, not, it's not Mordechai Berg's job to draw the line. It's HaKadosh Baruch Hu's job to draw the line. And that's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us. He says, I'm going to give you activities that are infinitely meaningful. Now, if you're going to sit there and you're going to make yourself OCD over every little thing, so then that's unhealthy. So the Rebbe tells us, Kodem Kol, a person has to be healthy. The Rebbe comes along and he tells us that tshuva was created before the creation of the world. So the Rebbe understands that we're going to make mistakes. And he gave us a process to rectify those mistakes. The Rebbe gave us kapara. He comes from Shemaim every Yom Kippur and he says, I'm bathing you, I'm cleansing you. Right? So HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not this angry God who's sitting there over every little second and everyone's going, ah, you didn't do the right thing, ah, you didn't do the right thing. No. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is infinitely compassionate. He understands us infinitely. Our job, though, is to recognize this is important. And if it's important, we're going to dedicate our lives to it. Understanding that we're going to make mistakes. I'll tell you what, if I haven't answered your question by the end of this year, come back to me. But I think I can guarantee that it'll be answered. Now, who's closer to God? The Malachim or us? us. Malachim. Can you say closer... Can you say closer when it comes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? If HaKadosh Baruch Hu is infinite, that means he's in Olamas Elyonim and Olamas Tachtoinim. Is there such... That's right, there's no such thing as distance when it comes to God's perspective. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because remember, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is infinitely present in every single place at every single moment in this world. That includes your entire being. You understand? So while you may feel other than God because you have a physical body, God does God to, to God everything is one. So Hakadosh Baruch Hu, from His perspective, everything is equal. So ask yourself this: We just said the Malachim and the human beings, but I give you another category. Who's closer to God, Sadiqim or Rishon? Rishon can get closer. You can't make a judgment. There's no such thing as closer when it comes to God. Closer to Hashem, what we mean is from our perspective. That the things that I'm doing create distance, the feeling of distance in the relationship. So for example, I have a father. Baruch Hashem, I'm very blessed to have a father. Everybody in this room, at some point in their life, had a father. Otherwise you wouldn't be here, right? So now, I might do things in my relationship with my father that diminish the relationship. If he tells me to do something and I decide not to do it, right? That might diminish our relationship. Right? I'll give you a small foolish example. This past week I was in America. Past week I was in America. I was in a place called SAR, 
And uh, at the same day, I was in YU. And I don't know if you heard, but both SAR and YU have been shut down because of Corona. Oh, cute. It's on my fam chat, I know it. So, so all day long, I just got back last night. All day long in Mivasera, guys have been going over to me and like saying, oh, welcome back, Rabbi, giving me their elbow. You know, like we're, I'm bumping elbows with all the guys. Of course, I don't need to be quarantined, Baruch Hashem. I think. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> so my father sent me a WhatsApp and said, are you going into yeshiva today? I said, yeah. He goes, maybe you should go to a doctor. I said, dad, <laughs> I need to go to a doctor. I'm not, I'm not in more risk than anybody else. So my father wrote, I know, he's, I know he gets frustrated at me when he writes this. He goes, let me try this again. <laughs> Which is my father's way of saying, listen to me. I'm Kanina Har, almost 40 years old. <laughs> I love my dad. My father, in this case, is overreacting, right? Because I was not exposed to anyone, as far as I know, with corona. And it's, there were plenty of people that were in SAR, and it's not, I didn't have any exposure to the people that had it. I'm saying, like, there was no need for me to do it. So I wrote back to my father. I said, I understand the protocol. I went through the protocol, and I don't need to go to a doctor. And he blue-checked me. So maybe, maybe my father blue-checked me because he just got busy, but probably, probably... Probably, my father was saying, don't be an idiot, <laughs> go get to a doctor, and you're not listening to me. Probably was frustrating to him that I wasn't listening to him, right? So maybe there's a feeling of distance in the relationship. Now, is there actually distance in the relationship? My father can't be more of a father than he is. And I can't be more of a son. You understand? So there's a feeling of distance in the relationship is not actually the same thing as being distant. So when we say grow closer to Hashem, what we mean is, do things and stop doing other things that are getting in the way of your relationship with Hashem. Do healthy, positive things that the Rebbe wants from you. But there's no such thing as getting closer to Hashem. And it's so dangerous to say get closer to Hashem because when you say get closer to Hashem, what you really mean is you're far, far, far from Hashem. And if I'm far, far, far from Hashem, that means it's very complicated to come all the way back. Right? So now, in that light the biggest tzaddik in the world and the biggest rasha in the world have an equal relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu from the perspective of the essence. Perhaps from the perspective of the relationship, the tzaddik is doing a better job at being in the relationship. He's a more compliant son. He's a more obedient son. But really, really, you can't be more of a son. You can't be less of a father. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So says the Labavashi Rebbe like this. Hodu is from a Lashon of Hod. Hod means illumination, light, splendor. Yeah? Kush is from a Lashon of Shachor, black, dark. That which appears to be other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So who's Hodu and who's Kush? Hodu are the Tzadikim and Kushim are the Rishayim. So now the Gemara has a machlokas. Where is Hodu and where is Kush? In other words, what's the relationship between those that are Hodu, those that are illuminated, light-oriented people, and those that are Kushim, those that are black, those that are distant from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak? So one man, the Amr on the Gemara says, they're on opposite ends of the world. The, tzaddik, the Tzaddikim are living on one end of the world, the Risham are living on the other end of the world. Mavish, you can't even compare them. But we know then the Megillah, whenever it says Hamolech, who is it referring to? 
It's referring to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is hidden within the Megillah. HaMoylech Mehodu Va'adkush means that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Moylech. He's the, he's the king over who? Over everybody. Even the Rasha who's behaving in the most despicable way. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Mamish present with him in that moment. And the Tzaddik who's behaving amazingly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is equally present with him. HaMoylech Mehodu Va'adkush. That's one way of approaching it. The difference is what they feel inside. Right. But now comes the second manda amr of the Gemara, and the second manda amr of the Gemara says, no, even that's a mistake. Hodu and Kush are right next to each other. The problem is that the Rasha is looking at his life, and he's looking at the Tzaddik, and he's saying, you're on one end of the world, and I'm on the other. And while that's true, there's an element of truth to it, because the Rasha is not behaving the way the Tzaddik is behaving. But from the perspective of God, is it possible to be distant from God. Is it possible even to say that the Rasha is on the opposite end of the world? You can't even say that. Not really in truth. Because there's no Aveira that's bigger than God. So from the perspective of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, every Aveira that the Rasha does, it's Batulum Bavutul Kamisha Eino. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, in, is inside of all of us. He's within all of us. So from the perspective of God, really, really, Hodu and Kush, those that are illuminated and those that are Chasr Shalom dark, they're mamish right next to each other. With this in mind, we can understand what was Rav Akiva saying to his Talmidim? Girls, when did Rav Akiva's Talmidim live? They lived in the times of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. What does it mean they were falling asleep? It means they were in a bad place. It means they were looking around in the world and they were saying, what's going to be with Yidin? We're about to be thrown out of our country. The Beis HaMikdash is going to be destroyed. What's going to be with Klal Yisrael? They were feeling a sense of chalisha, so weakness. So Rikiva wants to wake them up. So what does he tell them? Sorry, Imenu lived for 127 years. Girls, what does, that, what does Chazal say on Sorry, Imenu's 127 years? Kulan Shavin Lataiva. Every single one of those years was good. But when you look at Sorry, Imenu's life, it's so hard to understand what that Maimar Chazal means. Sorry, Imenu's life was good? Sorry, Imenu's life was terrible. Sorry, Imenu's life was terrible. Girls, do you understand the pain of what it means to not have children? You should never know. There's a woman on my block. So far, it doesn't appear that she can have children. She's a Ganenet. She's a Ganenet. My son goes to Gan by her. She's a Ganenet. And by the way, most Ganenot, they only have hours until like, let's say, one o'clock. Because they have to take care of their own children. She has a Tzaharon. She doesn't have any children to take care of. When she bought her house in my neighborhood, the houses are split into four. One person bought three quarters of a house. Because, can I know her? They have a lot of money. Who's going to buy a quarter of a house? A quarter of a house is so small. You know who buys a quarter of a house? Someone that doesn't have any children. It's just her and her husband. And her husband, as far as I know, I don't even think he has a job. Because what do you need a job for? You're a Ganenet. In this country, a Ganenet makes decent money. Life in Israel is not so expensive. Socialized medicine. She doesn't have any cost of education. She doesn't have any children. How much is food for two people? How much is clothing for two people? So she has a tzaharon. And her husband spends a lot of time. Sometimes I go with, I go with my son in the morning. Who's downstairs? Her husband. And the little boys, they call him the Abba. And it must be so hard for him. Yeah, it must be so hard for him. He's the Abba of the Gan. It must be so hard for him. And you see this guy, and it is mamish amazing. She's mamish amazing, and she's there with the kids. But I can't imagine, I, am, I can't even imagine that at 3 o'clock every day, when the Tzaharon is over, I can't imagine the pain of closing that door when the last child leaves and being empty and being home alone by yourself. 
in our neighborhood in Ramat Chemish, everything is the parks. Everything is the parks. I think yeah. it's probably like that here in Yerushalayim also. Everything is the parks. Because we don't have a lot of room in our homes. We don't have backyards for kids to go play in. And we don't have televisions for kids to sit and watch for hours on end. So everybody goes to the park. You go to the park and what do you do? You sit on the bench and you watch your little kids running around and playing with each other in the park. It's a beautiful thing. Because you know what it's like for those people that uh, maybe they had one or two kids but now something happened and now they can't have kids. And they're watching one day after another after another. Their friends come. And women always know about each other. They have like a radar for these things. This one is pregnant and that one is pregnant. And of course they're so happy for their friends. But what do they feel inside, girls? Why not me? Why not me? It's the biggest pain in the world. And secretly behind the closed doors, these women are, they're bawling their eyes out. Sorry, Imenu had a great life. Sorry, Imenu had a great life. What about all those years until she had Yitzchak? What was it like for Sorry, Imenu when Hagar was in the house? Could you imagine watching your husband have a child with somebody else? You can't even begin to imagine the pain. And then she finally has a child, and the other child is trying to kill her child. And she goes to her husband and she says, Could you please get rid of this woman? And what does he say? I don't really want to get rid of this woman. He has to ask the Rabbanu Shalom. The Rabbanu Shalom says, okay, do what your wife says. But even after you die, what, is that? what happens? He goes back and he marries Keturah, who's Hagar. Can you imagine the pain of what that must have been like for Sari Imenu? She had to be hidden in a box from Paro. Sari Imenu had a great life. You know what the answer is, girls? Sari Imenu saw the world through the prism of God. Kulon Shavon Lataiva means, doesn't mean that she didn't have pain. It means she understood that everything was good. Everything was coming from God. And that feeling that Sari Imenu had, it was implanted within us. That spark of goodness, it's inside of every single Jew. Says the Alter Rebbe. You know what it means to be a Jew in the times of Purim? There were Jews that were off the derech, there were Jews that were assimilated. After all, they were Nenemi Sudas Achashverosh. There were Jews that didn't do the right thing, right? But every single Jew was willing to die al Kiddush Hashem. Every single one was willing to die al Kiddush Hashem. Kulan Shavin Lataiva of Sari Imenu became the Nitzotz of Tom, it became the spark of goodness that was inside of every single Jew. And even that Jew that was so assimilated, so distant from God, you know what he was willing to do on Purim? I'm willing to die, Al Kiddush Hashem. They had that spark of goodness inside them. Says Rav Akiva, is Talmidim. You have Chalishus. You're looking at the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash and you're thinking to yourself, we're going to be so distant from God. You should know that even the Jew who's the most, quote-unquote, distant from God is willing to die al Kiddush Hashem. Esther Amalko ruled over them. Esther Amalko was the Nitzotz of Sara Imenu. And Sara Imenu, she found the Nitzotz of Tov inside of every moment of her pain. And that Nitzotz of Tov that was inside of every moment of Sara Imenu's pain, it's inside of every single one of us. It's the way we see the world, that spark of goodness. And we believe in ourselves even when we're so distant from God. We're not chas v'shalom paralyzed. We're not chas paralyzed by knowing that God infinitely cares about every moment because we know that God infinitely cares about us. We know that's in there. And that's why we're willing to die al-Kiddush Hashem. So Rav Akiva comes with the greatest Musar of all. He sees his Talmidim and their mamash giving up hope and he says to them, don't ever give up hope on a Jew. Tzadik v'rosh, their mamash right next to each other like Hodu and Kush. And that's what it means. The whole story of the Megillah. You could read it in one of two ways. Oi, a Shrek Lecha thing is happening, to, is happening to Yidin. They're going to be destroyed. And we have to dramatize it so we can understand how great the Yeshua is. That's one way of reading the Megillah. But that's not the way that we read the Megillah. The way that we read the Megillah is in that very beginning, in that very moment. When Achashverosh is coming for us. Every single Jew was infinitely connected, even the biggest Russia. 
our fate was never in doubt. Every single one of us was willing to die al Kiddush Hashem. That's how Kadosh we are. That's how connected we are, even when we feel so distant. You know, a lot of girls now, as we head into Purim, as I heard just as I was starting this year, maybe there's a little bit of a chalishus. Maybe there's a little bit of a weakness. Maybe there's a feeling of like, okay, the year is over. Purim, how much time is left already? And then after Pesach, how much time is left already? And a person could start to despair. A person could start to look at themselves and what have I really accomplished this year? If on a Thursday night I'm not going to class because... Uh, the, I'm not going to class anymore because I don't really want to go to class because the only reason I was going to class was for the incentive and now the incentive is over so now I'm not going. It could be there's a chalishas. Maybe even we're looking around and feeling the chalishas ourselves. Maybe even though we're here we're feeling like a sense of like, did we really steig this year? If you knew deep, deep inside of you that you have that spark of goodness that can never be extinguished. If you knew that the Rebbe Shalom can never be close or far because we're infinitely connected. The feeling of awakening in your life, the feeling of like, ah, I'm connected and I can never undo it. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Such a feeling awakens a Jew to tshuva. Such a feeling awakens a Jew to come back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Such a feeling arouses us to love. It arouses us to passion. To serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu with joy. And that's why the end of the story of the Megillah is like, the amazing, amazing simcha that we experience at the end of the story, because what did we discover? HaKadosh Baruch Hu would never, ever, ever let anything happen to us, because He cares about us infinitely. That's the way we have to feel. Maybe you're going to have your readers over Pesach. Maybe you're going to go back to America and you're going to do things you're not proud of. Maybe. But if you knew that you were infinitely connected, you would understand, okay, I make mistakes, I get back. Relapse recovery, relapse recovery. I make mistakes, I get back. We should be zaycheh this Purim. When it comes to hearing the Megillah, and we hear those first words, should be excited, because you're about to hear the story of every single Jew, and the infinite connection that exists inside of every single one of us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not just beyond this world, He's also within this world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not just within this world, He's within every single one of us, and in every single moment of our lives.